Welcome to episode 32 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Psycharmer trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psychharmer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. Today, we'll be talking about The Mission Continues, a national veteran service organization that connects veterans with under-resourced communities around the country. My guest is Mary Beth Bruggeman, who spent eight years as an active-duty Marine combat engineer. After leaving active duty, Mary Beth worked for the iRobot Corporation for four years, advancing their work on counter-IED robotics, spent time as a stay-at-home mom and Marine wife, then started and grew a fitness and nutrition coaching business. Mary Beth joined the Mission Continues team in 2015 as the Executive Director for the Southeast Region, and in 2019, Mary Beth assumed the role as President of the Mission Continues. You can find out more about Mary Beth by checking out her bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. You have an amazing story going from being a leader of combat engineers in the Marine Corps to iRobot to working as a fitness and nutrition coach and ultimately ending up in the mission continues where you've been for about the past six years or so. What was that journey like going from the Marine Corps to the corporate world and ultimately leading one of the nation's most well-known veteran support organizations? I would describe it as a winding road. It wasn't linear by by any stretch. When I left the Marine Corps, I was looking for some continuity, something that I could hold on to some thread of the familiar. I had one daughter at the time. She was very young. I wasn't looking for the job that I got at iRobot, but it was an opportunity that came to me and really fit because it was really a chance to stay in the community of combat engineers that I knew and was familiar with, but to take my skills to a different side of the fence, if you will. And so moving over to that corporate world was just such a great opportunity. I loved iRobot. Most people know them for their Roombas, but I was working on their counter improvised explosive device or their counter IED robots. Essentially, I was a Marine Corps account manager. So I was selling those robots to the Marine Corps and feeding back requirements to iRobot so that we could produce the technology that the military most needed from us at the time, which was 2007. I worked for them for a couple of years, and they were really a wonderful company, flexible. I worked remotely while I was with iRobot. I did some travel to meet and talk to Marines at bases, but ultimately that was really a great chance for me to raise kids. I had two other additional children while I was working for iRobot and was able to flex my hours up and down as needed. I got to the end of that road when I had my third child and my husband was still an active duty Marine and we were moving to Camp Pendleton, California so that he could take command of the Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company or Anglico out in California. He was going to deploy like a minute later. So I was heading out there with a six-week-old daughter, a two-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter and just realizing that also trying to maintain a full-time job through that was going to be way too much. 
So I left the workforce at that point and I stayed home to raise my kids. And that was very challenging. First of all, it's hard to be a stay-at-home mom. That disclaimer aside, it was challenging for me as well because I wanted to have a career. And it was, while I was, I did it very willingly and certainly free of any coercion, I also knew that it was taking me off a path and it scared me. It, it really shook my confidence and made me think I wasn't going to be able to get back to the workforce. And that sustained for quite some time, that feeling. I volunteered a ton during that time. I volunteered on base. I volunteered with my husband's command. I volunteered as a coach for girls on the run. I volunteered as a English as a second language teacher in the evenings and anything I could do just to help in my community and, and be a leader in some way. I held on to. When I started working out in my garage in California, everyone just worked out in their garage. When I started doing that just to lose baby weight and get back in shape and have some structure to my days, neighbors started coming and saying, can I do this? It looks like it's working for you. Can I do this with you? That's what sparked the idea for me that this was, in fact, eventually gathered around me and said, we should be paying you to do this. We're, we all feel great. You're writing all these workouts for us. You're up late at night doing this so we can work out at five in the morning together in our garages. You should monetize it. And it was, I didn't want to at the time. I was just so happy to be giving back and sharing this with them. But ultimately not because I wanted to monetize with them, but because I thought that I could gain more skills and tools if I did this more professionally. That's when I started to build my fitness and nutrition coaching business. And it was it was never something I wanted to do long term, but I learned a ton from that. And I learned a lot from doing something that wasn't necessarily my passion or my dream, but it was important for me to be doing it. I knew I could help people. It was sales also, and that's a skill that everybody should have. Maybe some would say similar to waiting tables or tending bar. It's just something everyone should do in their lives. And again, just gained a lot of tremendous skills there, but still was looking for a way back to what I perceived as a different kind of professional career. I didn't know what I wanted it to be. So winding road again, I actually applied to be in the FBI twice and had to pull my application for various reasons. One, because I got pregnant with my son. The second time, because I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and it was right at just exactly the wrong time and it just wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Anyways, all that to say, we moved back to DC and my husband agreed to take the, the trail role so that I could take the lead. He was still on active duty, but he said, I'm going to, I'm going to be in a job where I can be in DC and be steady so that you can go to grad school. I went to graduate school at Georgetown and that's where I really understood. It wasn't the first time I had felt it, but it's really where I understood my passion for social change and, and just work in communities, frankly. I, I had some specialization in housing policy and it woke me up to inequities and opportunities to make an impact through policy, opportunities to make an impact through community work. And then through a, a board member at the Mission Continues and a lot of aggressive networking, I found this opportunity to come to an organization that combined my resume, which spoke veteran national security defense, and my my interest and passion for work in communities and volunteering. And it really, I couldn't have planned it, but it was, it's really has just been the perfect place for me to be. You know, I, I think that's really important for service members and veterans and military spouses who are listening to this to hear about that winding road. But the thread that goes through it is to serve and be of service. Obviously, we all take that next step career after the military that's most closely aligned with what we were doing just because it's most comfortable, which was what you did at iRobot. But then this transition between being a woman Marine and then a military spouse, you were dual military. And then all of a sudden you weren't dual military. You were quote unquote, the spouse, which that can be challenging for a lot of individuals. What was that transition like for you? 
you know, it had its highs and lows. I will say I never felt disconnected from the Marine Corps because I had that connection through my husband. And I appreciated that. I still went to the Marine Corps ball. I had no regrets about leaving active duty because I knew that I couldn't be the mom I wanted to be and the Marine I knew how to be at the same time. Some people can do that. Some people find a way. It wasn't my path. I knew that it wasn't. And I will tell you that I've had, and I still maintain to some degree, a lot of anger at the world and resentment at the world. That's true. Mm -hmm. And I would love to use some part of my energy and my resources, and I do now, to advocate for change in all of our organizations, but particularly in the Defense Department and in the Marine Corps, to be able to think differently about the, the work-life balance to allow somebody like me to continue to give back as an active duty Marine while also being the kind of parent I want to be. And it's not a suggestion that we have Marines that work 20 hours a week. That's not what I'm suggesting, but there are some real measurable changes that we could make to the culture over time. It's a generational shift that would allow people like me to stay in because I was a good Marine. I really was. And I, I loved being a Marine and I, I didn't want to have to get out. I wanted to get out when I did, but I really resented that I had to, that I needed to make that choice. And I always have. It's not a chip on my shoulder or anything, but it is a it is in the background of a resentment that I ever had to make that decision. And so in, and really you're talking about this binary choice. Either you had the choice to be the best Marine that you could be and make sacrifices on the family front or be the parent that you wanted to be and, and make the sacrifices in the Marine Corps. And hearing even with your husband, you said at one point he said, I'm going to take a back seat, but it's perhaps not pursue things that would take me other places that would advance my career. He sacrificed his career to be the best spouse he could be. It does, And it's not just for, for women veterans, but that was an example of there's really this binary choice of it's in the army. We used to say one or the other, never both. And, and unfortunately, that's the case with maybe service and family. I think so. I, I think it can be. Again, I, I know that some folks listening, active duty moms, active duty parents, and have found a way to keep that balance. And I respect and admire them tremendously. At the time, without the benefit of hindsight, I didn't think I could do that. And I still kind of think, considering just how my life has shaped up, I, I don't think I could have done that. And the push and pull with my husband has been a partnership and it's evolved over time. And in the beginning of our partnership in our marriage, we've been married now 17 and a half years, but in the beginning of that partnership, that was challenging and it required a ton of communication and a lot of respect and understanding and some conflict in there that was just hard deciding, just like you said, it, someone's in the lead and someone is following. And that's, that is how we've had to structure our relationship, frankly, throughout, because both of us want to lead, both of us want to uh, progress and advance in our careers. And neither of us has, neither of us has been heading to a place, at least up until now, where we wanted to do a job, had a ton of balance. The job I'm in now, I, we have a really flexible culture. I think we've got a very, a great work environment. But when COVID really ends, I go back to traveling probably on a weekly basis. And I don't have a choice in that. And that's what this job is. And my husband recognizes and appreciates and respects and loves that and wants that for me. But it does mean that his career choices are very particular. And he has to now take what we would consider a backseat and say, I'm, I'm supporting you now. I'm helping you get to the place you wanted to be. And that requires him to take a step back. 
and there will come a time, I hope there comes a time, and again, he and I work this out on a monthly basis, but if there comes a time when the Cleveland Browns call him and say, we want you in our front office, then that's the dream. And that's when I know, like, I take Trace, I fall into Trace, and he takes lead. And we have, we've had some of those conversations, but it really is, it's just communication every day, never stop working on it. You just always have to keep trying to figure out what your partnership needs. And I think that's one of the things is really you need to be able to have that balance and you need to be able to have that compromise uh, because that's really what makes the complicated military life work. But talking about what you're doing now, that I've always been a fan of the Mission Continues, peer organizations really provide veterans the opportunity to engage in their community in a meaningful way. So it's almost inconceivable that somebody listening to this may not know about the Mission Continues, but they may not be familiar with some of the programs. Yeah. While it's inconceivable, I do think it's a challenge that we have as a post 9-11 veteran organization. So I will start with the boilerplate because I think that's a good place to start. And I hope that I'm repeating that for a lot of folks on this call. But for those who haven't heard of us, we're a national nonprofit organization that exists to connect veterans with opportunities here at home to continue their service. We do that specifically in in a place-based way. We work in under-resourced communities. And we are helping veterans gain the skills, the additional skills and tools that they need in order to do that work well and to give back and to be needed in a whole different way here on the home front. So fulfilling that that sense of purpose, helping veterans feel connected in even in a social network to other veterans and more so to their communities. I think that's something veterans really struggle with as well is this disconnect from community that you can feel when you're transient for much of your life. And when you are part of such a tight-knit culture that you don't always understand or appreciate that people on the outside of that culture, that you've got to have some, there's got to be some porous nature to that relationship where you can meet people that are community members and they can respect and understand you and they can understand your story and you can understand theirs. So we give people an opportunity to do that. We do it in a couple different ways. So on the ground, the way most people see us is through what we call our service platoon which are teams of veteran and non-veteran, so community member, volunteers who come together on a regular basis, usually at least monthly, in a community. We're in about 40 cities across the country, and they get together to work on incremental long-term service projects with a community partner. So it might be an elementary school or a neighborhood park association or a community association of some kind in a place, in some geographic place, but ultimately building, landscaping, doing things physical with our hands that tie us together and also provide capacity building and resources to partners in our community that often have incredible dreams and and hopes for their community, but don't have the resources and sometimes don't have the leadership or the push that they need in order to actually bring those dreams to life. We do a lot of listening to those partners and we help them. We help them pull the thread on those dreams until they can come to life all through volunteer labor and all while giving veterans exactly what it is they need post-service, which is that connection to other veterans and that purpose. And this is one of the things that I really appreciate about post-9-11 veteran service organizations like Rubicon, like RWB, like the mission continues is you satisfy the veterans need in a particular way and Rubicon does it in a different particular way. So if I want to go chop down trees, then you know, sure, I could do that. The mission continues, but Rubicon may be the best place. And obviously they do a lot more than that. But this idea of really providing communities what they need 
need, but also veterans what they need. I recall from our conversations where you did some work in Baltimore. I recruited outside of Fort Meade. I did a lot of work in Baltimore and D.C., but maybe some examples of some of the, the projects that you did there in Baltimore that, that can really help the listeners understand more about the impact that the mission continues could have. Sure. Yeah. We have worked in Baltimore for more than six years now, five, five, five or six years now, since the early part of my time at the Mission Continues. And our work there started in a community called Harlem Park West, which is in West Baltimore. It is right next to Sandtown, Winchester, which is the little neighborhood where Freddie Gray was arrested that sparked the unrest and riots in Baltimore back in 2000. Sandtown Winchester got some infusion of resources after Freddie Gray's death and a lot of attention brought to that neighborhood. Meanwhile, Harlem Park West, sitting right next to it, didn't receive any of those resources or attention, but have all the same systemic challenges that are three streets down. So we navigated our way to Harlem Park West through community leaders that we met in that area who said, this is where you should be working. They've got community leadership that is ready for partnership. They have no resources. They have very little in the way of resources. And they've got some tremendous community assets. They've got this little school in the middle of the community called, it was called Roots and Branches at the time, that it provides a community gathering spot. There's a nonprofit in the community that helps returning citizens and those going through rehab integrate back into their community. They had assets for them and for us to work with. They just really needed some partnership. So we started asking them a lot of questions about what their community needed and how we could be helpful and matching that with the skills of our volunteer force. We started working there and we worked there for many years and we re refurbished basketball courts in the community. We took vacant lots. We had took one vacant lot in the right in the center of the community. And they said, you know, what we really want is a community walkthrough theater. We want a place where we can perform, where we can visit on gather on Sunday afternoons. We can project movies from across the street onto the wall. We have all these ideas and dreams. This is what we envision it looking like. And over the course of months and months, we were able to slowly bring that to life with them. They were out there with us every step of the way, directing traffic and helping us recognize and appreciate and understand their vision and just bringing the resources and the people and the passion to actually bring it to life. And I'll tell you, one of the most impactful moments I've ever had at The Mission Continues was the end of the project that finally completed the community walkthrough theater. It was actually on September 11th. I don't remember what year, but it was September 11th, probably 2018 or 2017. And we also erected a giant professionally made sign, large sign, probably 10 feet long, that said, Welcome to Harlem Park West. And as we dug the holes and put quickcrete in them and, and, and placed this sign and, and filled it back in, it was fairly, for us as volunteers, there was some transaction to it. Okay, get the job done, get the task completed. And we looked up and the neighbors were all around us and they had tears streaming down their faces. For them, that sign meant that they were a place. It meant that they were a destination as opposed to being a street that people drove through on their way to somewhere else. And that's all they wanted to be. They wanted to be a place where people came to live and came to go to school and they weren't trying to leave. They wanted to be a part of a community. And even just having a sign with a logo that they had designed as a community up on that sign meant everything in the world. And so for us as veterans to be able to be there in that moment and have built the trust for them to allow us to be a part of that day, for them to put their arms around us and take a picture, veteran, community member, veteran, community member, arm in arm with this sign in the middle that I still have, it was beautiful. It was so incredible. What a memorable day. And it's the perfect representation of what it means to be a part of the mission continues. 
It means being part of a team. It means being part of something way bigger than yourself. It means being a part of something that can be really long-term and incredibly impactful. And it means, once again, feeling like you came home and the skills and experience you gained in the military just got put to use again. And that community needed us. And that felt amazing. And we had it to give. So it was a it was a perfect day as I look back. And I think that's really one of the things that is really beneficial. And not just the mission continues, but many organizations are trying to bridge the civilian military divide. Psych Armor is doing the same thing. We've been talking on the show somewhat, but but to be able to step into that gap and continue the mission just because we leave the military, whether you're helping folks work out in your garage or you're planting signs in Baltimore, you're really wanting to continue the mission and continue to give back. But then you just mentioned 9-11, and, and this is something that now the mission continues is starting a new project. One of the most recent efforts is the Operation Enduring Service, a campaign that marks the upcoming 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on 9-11 and launches the next 20 years of veteran-led community engagement. What can you tell us about Operation Enduring Service? Yeah, we're really excited about this. This is a really big swing for the Mission Continues this year. And we've been anticipating, we all knew this 20th anniversary was coming, as crazy it is as it is to think about the fact that it's been 20 years, Dwayne, I'm sure that blows your mind when we both imagine where we were 20 years ago. But this is an opportunity for us to capture really the sentiment and the feeling, almost when you think about it, of September 12th. It's the way this country came together. It's what it inspired in a generation of those who would serve. And in some cases, those were folks that served in the military. In many cases, people served in the military and came home and just like you, continued to serve and find a way to do that in some other way. And we're really inspired by those. And we want the world to be inspired by those stories because we want people to be inspired to serve, period. In uniform, out of uniform, however you find a way, this country needs more servants. This country needs more folks who are showing up to be a part of something bigger than themselves. So between the months of July and November, we're going to spend five months commemorating and marking respectfully the day of 9-11 and what that meant, the gravity of that moment and that day, but really spending our time thinking about and celebrating the 20 years of service that it kicked off. And then pivoting and using that as inspiration then to think about what the next two decades could be in this country if more people are inspired by those stories of service and also find ways to give of themselves and serve their country. So we there's a storytelling component to this. So I would love for all of your listeners to go to our website and submit your 9-11 story. It's a little bit about where you were on the day and what that day changed for you. And it's a little bit of how you chose to serve in the wake of 9-11. And again, this is not a, it's not a question just for veterans. We're not the only ones who serve. It's for everybody. We will also have a service project component to this that's core to who we are and what we do. So in five cities across the country between July and November, we have what we're calling our signature OES or 9-11 projects. We'll be in Chicago in July. We'll be in Los Angeles in August in New York City in September, in Dallas in October, and then back in D.C. for the finale in November, just before Veterans Day on November 6th. We are engaged in a thought leadership piece of this as well, partnering with our great partners at Nation Swell, which is a social impact media company 
who are going to help us produce a five-part conversation series to talk about all the themes we just covered today, including women veterans and how the unique ways that women serve in this country and, and show up to serve, but also talking about the impact of 9-11 and what it inspired in a generation of leaders and of service members. Now, I think that's uh, really an interesting concept as we're obviously the World War II generation is passing and, and even the Vietnam generation is passing. And, and those of us who have served or realizing that we're losing those stories. But this is a way to capture the stories of 9-11. And 9-11, for our generation very specifically, I think, is one of those where were you win moments. Like everybody knows where they were uh, when JFK, but the stories are so unique. Me, for example, for me, 9-11 happens in the afternoon because I was in Germany. So it was like two or three in the afternoon, and it was three quarters of the way through my duty day whenever it happened and, and really having this idea of when I heard about it, who I was with, I will remember that forever. We were listening to it on the radio in AFN. I was listening to it on the radio when the plane hit the Pentagon. And that's the moment where I said, we're at war now, because all, up until that point, you really hadn't understood what was going on because of the way that the, the information was getting over. And then, of course, in Germany, everything changed. You were overseas. And so our op tempo and force protection just went through the roof. And so those kind of things were important as everybody and the most of the people that I talk to think about 9-11 happening in the morning because they were stateside. Mm -hmm. For those of us in Europe, it was totally different. And, and so I, I, capturing those stories like that are important. Yeah. And I want to capture yours. That's tremendous. And I think that when I imagine what that must have felt like to be deployed away from the United States, like you were even closer to the threat. It must have felt and truly been that way. And I'm I'm interested to hear more about that. So submit your story, Dwayne. I want to read it. I want to share it with the world. But truly, it, it was the day that everything changed. We went from being in a peacetime military, you and I both. When did you start your active duty time? So that's another piece is that 9-11 split my career in half. And so yeah. I spent the first half of my career from 92 to 2000 in a peacetime military, yeah. somewhat went to Bosnia, things like that. But it mm -hmm. was a lot of that post-Gulf War, mid-90s stuff. But I was one of the ones that split my career. I was already a sergeant first class when I deployed, I, but there wasn't a year between 2006 and, and 2014 that I wasn't gone. And so I think that's really something that the stories are so different because you have those of us who had been in for 10 years already, and now all of a sudden I've been training for 10 years to the Super Bowl, and now here's the big game. And then when I was a platoon sergeant in Afghanistan in 2009, 2010, out of a 70-person platoon, only me and one of the other people in the platoon were in before 9-11. Mm -hmm. Of course, my platoon leader, all of my section sergeants, all of the soldiers joined after 9-11. And so there were only two of us who remembered what life was like before that. So those are the kind of challenges, I think, that really changed people's lives in the military. But then also it changed our lives in general, because my son was born one month before 9-11. When there's this idea of, for the first time, and especially as we're winding down in Afghanistan, but the first time we're engaging in this cross-generational war. So just being able to capture all of those stories at this point, knowing that we're going to be capturing these stories for the next 50 years so that we don't lose what we feel like we may be losing with World War II and Vietnam veterans. Yeah, I, I share your desire to capture this in the same way. And it, it makes me immeasurably sad to, to know how many World War II stories have already slipped through our fingers without us just appreciating and having an opportunity to sit down and, and ask more questions. My great uncle, who's the one who inspired me to go to the Naval Academy and, and serve in the first place, he graduated from the academy. Me. He was class of 45, graduated in 44. 
And I remember sitting on his knee and asking him a hundred questions about his time in the Navy in World War II, but I couldn't recite them. I can't retell them. And I, and now I've lost them to a degree and I will never lose what I had, the relationship I had with him. But I'm so sad that the world doesn't have a little bit more of my Uncle Paul and we can't retell those stories. And I wish I could go back in time and start writing things down. But we want to do that with this generation. I don't want to lose that with 9-11 veterans. And I don't want the folks who took some inspiration from these last 20 years. I don't want them to lose the opportunity to use that as an opportunity to inspire others. Veterans have, you've heard me say this, Dwayne, a thousand times, I know, during when we were together in our program, veterans have so much social capital in this country right now. When we speak as a collective, we are blessed and fortunate that the American public hears us and listens and has some respect for the way we come to our conclusions and the generally nonpartisan nature with which we conduct ourselves and have learned to conduct ourselves, we are not polarizing. We're one of the last remaining entities that is not polarizing. We can be very, we can be very uniting. That's what I think we need now. And, and more than ever, I think when we hear these stories of service and sacrifice, my great strong hope is that they will feel very accessible. And not all the stories we're collecting are not stories of heroism. That, it, that isn't what it was to be alive on 9-11. They were everyday stories of where we were caught in the moment and then what we were able to do with that time and what we were asked to do and how people rose to that challenge from the people who happened to be in lower Manhattan on that day and, and everyday people who were lifting stones out of the way to find survivors to, to somebody who decided to become a teacher because they just wanted to find a way to give back and, and be closer to kids. There's just a million ways we can serve. So I hope we can find those points of inspiration. Absolutely. And, and I absolutely agree. And not to be arrogant, so to speak, but I do personally believe that this generation of veterans does have the ability to be this century's greatest generation, have the same impact on this century that the World War II and the Korean War generation had on, on the last century. Absolutely want to recommend that folks reach out and, and engage in Operation Enduring Service. So if people want to find out more about the mission continues, maybe about the work that you're doing, how could they do that? Best way is to go straight to our website, www.missioncontinues.org. Find out if there is a service platoon in your community and sign up to be a part of it and get information on that platoon and come out and serve alongside us. If there's not a platoon in your community and you're a veteran and you're interested in thinking about how to start one, there's information for how to do that as well. And we welcome folks as we continue to grow this movement and, and bring more people into this opportunity to continue their service. Absolutely. And I'll make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. Thank you once again for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you, Dwayne. Great to see you and talk to you. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. Now, I always say at the end of the show that I appreciate you listening, and I do, but I especially do on this episode. I know that this conversation was a bit longer than our typical shows, but I think that the information that Mary Beth talked about about her service and experience, about the impactful work that the mission continues is doing, and about the efforts to capture the stories of the impact of 9-11 and the commitment to continued service. These were really important conversations to have. To pull the curtain back a little bit, 
Often, we have these conversations several weeks before we air the episode, and that's what Mary Beth and I did. She and I spoke before what's going on as this episode is being released, the withdrawal in Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul. And the things that she shared in our conversation have really helped me personally over these past difficult weeks. Anyone who is serving, has served, or cares for those who served know how hard this has been, watching the events in Afghanistan unfold. If we think back 20 years ago, 9-11 was a universally distressing event. When it happened, watching the aftermath for weeks and months, but also for those of us in the military, understanding life changed in an instant. As I mentioned in the conversation, I knew that we were a nation at war the moment I heard about the plane hitting the Pentagon. And then, in the intervening years, we've had many hardships as a nation. But I can't necessarily recall a time since 9-11 that such an event fell so heavily on the military and veteran community. Even when Iraq fell in 2013 and 2014, it was certainly distressing for those of us who served there. I remember watching a news report on the fall of Fallujah with a bunch of Marines who were spitting mad. But we also had another war going on. Today, what's happening is generating a lot of questions for those of us who served in Afghanistan and those who didn't. What was the point? Why were we there? What does this mean for the thousands of lives lost, the hundreds of thousands of lives changed by catastrophically wounded, ill, or injured service members? What do we do with this mix of emotion, anger, sadness, confusion? As I was going through this week, both personally as a mental health professional with my clients, I also remember this conversation with Mary Beth and added another question. What do we do now? What's next for those who served and have been so strongly impacted? The now what part is how are we, as veterans, going to continue to serve? How are we going to ensure that the sacrifice of those that were lost was not in vain? And that's the story of continued service. I believe now, as much as when I said it in this interview and when I've said it other times, that current era veterans have the capacity to help this country to heal. We also have the capacity to do harm, which is absolutely not necessary. Harm to ourselves and harm to others. We can let the anger overwhelm us and withdraw and disengage from society, and we can choose to do and be something else. When the author, Sebastian Younger, talks about what's next for service members, he describes a painting by Winslow Homer called Veteran in a New Field. This is a painting of a veteran harvesting wheat. In the lower right-hand corner of the painting, you can see some of the cast-off uniform of a Union Army soldier laying on the ground. The concept is that this is a soldier who might have fought at Gettysburg or the Wilderness Campaign, but now they're back from war and they're not on the battlefield anymore. They're in the wheat field. They had to move on to what's next. They had to re-engage with the non-combat community. They had to get back to work. And that's what we have to do. Serve in communities in need here at home. Places like Harlem Park West and Baltimore and rural Alabama and Native American communities in the West. Not just sit in the anger and despair and confusion and depression, but to do something with that emotion. To refuse to let it to overwhelm us, but instead use it to transform us, to motivate us, to do more where we're at and with what we have. So again, thank you for taking the time to listen to this extended episode. And check out the links in the show notes to see how you can get involved in your community. If what you're experiencing right now is distressing or upsetting or in any way uncomfortable for you, reach out to help. Find somebody to talk to. Re-engage with your peers. Connect with someone and talk about what's going on. And as you talk about it, discuss what you're going to get involved in to take the next step to help the communities here at home. So for this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a course that drives this point home, why veterans are an invaluable resource in the community. 
The military and veteran communities are rich with qualities unique to their character and military experience. Community leaders will learn about why taking the time to embark on a collaborative journey can ensure that veterans and their families unlock their full potential and apply their invaluable skills back into their communities. You can take a look at this course by checking out a link in the show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode once again. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at psycharmer.org forward slash btm32, as well as on the Psycharmer website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.